You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and this is my conversation with Loki. He's one of the members of a band based in Melbourne. They're called Hybrid Nightmares. This is without doubt one of my favourite interview subjects. Really admire Loki's enthusiasm. So let's hear what he has to say. Let's go. Hybrid Nightmares, wonderful band, and you've been going since 2008. You have a few offerings in market since the self-titled EP, I think, was released in 2012. And, mate, the band does have some identifiable themes that are both visual and musical. And what I'm really saying is you are a very unique blackish metal band. So, mate, in your own words, tell us or tell the audience what they need to know about Hybrid Nightmares before I ask you about your excellent new album, Almagest. Sure. So um, my name's Loki, I think, for Hybrid Nightmares. We classify ourselves as sort of a progressive extreme band. Um, we, we don't so much identify with the black metal label as much as perhaps we did in our youth because uh, we've moved away from a lot of the, uh, the the themes and ideas associated with traditional black metal. And although we are big fans of black metal, um, I think the topics that we cover as, as uh, artists uh, differ slightly in that we're more storytellers and fiction artists than we are um, uh, purveyors of any sort of overarching political, social or religious ideology. Um, and yeah, we've been going 10 years strong. We released the self-title quite a while ago now, followed by a concept uh, release of four EPs in a year back in 2015. And then finally, uh, after 10 years, we've released our first album, which we're really stoked on. Um, and yeah, the heavily influenced by uh, early to, to, you know, the, the mid-90s science fiction as well as some modern science fiction and um, uh, heavy, heavy, a great deal of emphasis on storytelling. Hmm. Okay, so I hope I pronounced it correct there. So tell me if I haven't. Is it Almagest or Almagest, the name of the new album? Almagest. Yeah, Almagest. Okay. So I read that it's actually an Arabic title, so it sounds like something of a concept record as well. So my first question mm. would be, is it the defining Hybrid Nightmare Hybrid Nightmares album? Is it the album that you've been waiting to make your entire lives? Uh, absolutely. I think it's taken, and, and uh, anyone who's been following the band for since Day Dot, which is, admittedly is not a few people, because it did take us a while to get where we are, um, will know that uh, Alma just is sort of the culmination of many, many years of uh, storytelling, story crafting, honing um, what is both a uh, very accessible metal record, but very much ours, uh, very much our sound and our approach concept-wise. We, we, we've always sort of done concept releases, uh, and the story, uh, although not directly related or linear, is certainly set in, uh, in a similar mindset across every release. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're, we're very proud to be able to offer a different take on our understanding of the way things are, uh, with, with the, with the Jess record where we couldn't be happier with, with how it's turned out. And we are all very much, um, we were very much, no, uh, we were very much waiting to release this record, I think is the way to say it. Like even through the studio yeah, process, makes sense. This, this, this is a cracker and, um, we're, we're immensely proud of how it's come out. Hmm. So 
how do you guys go about constructing a tune that will make a hybrid nightmares album? And indeed, let's let's reference the the in market album Albergist. Do guitarists sure. Ben and Mick, for example, bring a collection of riffs to a rehearsal room old school, or are the ideas worked on elsewhere? So you like you email some ideas around that have been recorded onto whatever door you decide mm. to use. <laughs> um, we we very much adopt uh, what would be considered the old school approach. Uh, every every member of Hybrid Nightmares is a contributing writer. Um, so on every release, there has been various musical parts uh, either written or, or in some way influenced or produced by various members. Um, on the latest release, it is very heavily, at least in the first instance, um, written by uh, Hellwinter, our bass player. Uh, but then it comes to the, what we call the shop, where we take it to bits, deconstruct it, rework it, chuck that in the bin, Let's try this one tone up, 5 BPM faster, 10 BPM slower, those sorts of things. And uh, the result is often a heavily refined, um, highly worked on uh, end product, which which uh, everyone's had a piece of uh, uh, influence in. So we don't, we don't we, we, yeah, we don't so much do the what 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 we call riff banking, where you like here's ten riffs, let's chuck them in and and see how we go. Um, although we do know our way around doors, the guitar pros, the reapers, those sorts of things. It's certainly not um, something that uh, we, uh, we we use regularly. We, we prefer the old school approach of studio. Look, that heartens me because I was listening to, you obviously know who Jamie Jaster is, the lead singer in Hatebreed and a few other bands I think mm. he's got. And he has an excellent podcast series, which I do listen to. Um, a very prominent producer, I think it might have been Zeus or one of the other Metal Blade or Nuclear Blast associated producers, he was saying that he even gets some prominent bands. He didn't mention who they were coming into the studio with riffs. Mm. You talk about a riff bank. They haven't even worked on them prior to going into the studio. So they must wait for him to assemble it. Um, Who was the bloke who helped the Beatles assemble all of the songs? Of course, I remember as soon as the bloody interview's finished, Um, but... Well, earlier earlier on uh, the the Abbey Road days, it was uh, Alan Parsons had a lot of influence in the early days from production element, but I, I may not be the George Martin. Or... I think is the guy that no, George no, Martin. It is George Martin. Yeah, yeah. Alan Parsons. Alan Parsons is also the guy that was the engineer for Pink Floyd as well. Yeah, he was. Yeah, um, and we we're very uh, some of us are very big. Myself and Ben. Uh, especially a very big Alan Parsons fans, and a lot of the progressive elements we do—the science fiction, the heavily story-driven stuff—is um, is drawn from that old-school prog rock. That's awesome, mate. I Robot was a, a a tape because my father had the tape, and that's a soundtrack to my childhood, yeah. actually. Oh, for me, it's all about Sirius. I reckon Sirius, Alan Parsons project album, has to be one of the best concept records of all time, from start to finish. It's just engaging. It's clever, um, and they the the project always had a certain uh, up until sort of the late eighties when it sort of departed a bit in my mind. They always had a very uh, powerful approach to storytelling, and w- without giving the whole plot away themselves, leaving it up to the listener. But also from start to finish, the record is clearly a motif expressed across ten or eleven parts, uh, rather than it like this song, this song, this song. You feel like when you listen to a Parsons album, um, similar to Yes as well, when you listen to those sorts of albums, they, they, they feel like complete works rather than just snatching grabs from various, uh, as I would say, riff banks. And I think that's uh, from, from where we come from, um, and you might, you might approach this later, I'm not sure what, what else is lined up, but certainly 
the songwriting is as much uh, a part of what we do as the album crafting, where we, we sit down. In fact, about four weeks out of the studio, we totally reworked the track order on our chest. That's that's how much we think that that element matters. The the the, the entire content of the record itself changed the month out because we weren't satisfied with uh, the flow and and the and the uh, the the, the the linear nature of the story. So, do your fans understand that aspect of the way you approach uh, writing songs and the like? Do they know that about you? Are you very engaged on social media with your fans, and are they aware of the the attention to detail that you go to in terms of creating a concept? I think um, the fans who we're, we're not so much on the hard and fast uh, marketing. Uh, we love to reach out to people who engage with us. So anyone who engages with us, I'll, I'll spend, invest, um, dedicate as much time of my time as they want to help them feel like they are part of our, our family, our cult, if you like, um, because they are they are so devoted. And I think the people who do spend the time on the records and listen to them multiple times, or um, even even so in so far as taking the booklets out and assembling them in various ways, there's Pat. And there's rules and there's cryptic stuff that we work into the records, the physical records themselves. Um, I, I think uh, they they are aware, and I think part of part of something that's really important from my perspective about what we do is that uh, there is sort of a, a next level of appreciation or understanding for people who who want to put in the time. But there, there's still a lot there for people who, you know, want to just have a like listen to a few bangers and then move on to the next record. Uh, although I wish they'd sit on my record forever, uh, um, I think what we what we have to offer in terms of that really sinking your teeth into an album, um, that's something we're, we're very uh, very conscious of and, and do try to communicate to our fans. The band remind me a little bit of Nocturnus AD. Does that resonate? Um, somewhat. Without being intimately familiar uh, with their catalogue, it's hard for me to say. Um, but uh, in what regard do you think what we do sort of resembles what they do? Science fiction with a concept. That's really it. Probably not the music, although the music is... Mm. I, would, I would say that there are similarities. Definitely not about the music, though. It's more about the theme and the concept. And you're yeah. probably the two most prominent sci-fi-based blackish... And I know you've already said that it's a bit different to blackish metal, but I think you know what I mean in terms of the tonal aspects of the music. Yeah, I do. No, I do. I, I do. Um, and uh, if... It, Perhaps moving on to material I'm more familiar with, I think we we sort of consider ourselves a lot like Vector, um, who do that sort of black metal, but it's it's actually thrash, but it's science fiction based thrash, and it's very much grounded in um, not not as science fiction as well as actual cosmic science. Um, and I think Vector is a band. We we sort of align, we, we gleefully align ourselves with. Um, unfortunately, I am not as familiar with Nocturnus AD material, but certainly something now that I know that they're, uh, they're sci fi guys, I'll be sure to look it up. Absolutely. That's, that's my main racket. So, something it else. Like that, good... Yeah, I think you'd enjoy their music. And I noticed that some of the social media posts that the band um, put on their Facebook page, I think it was, were some fans mm-hmm. actually turned up dressed as some of the characters through their songs. <laughs> Do you That's get really cool. is that something that you would anticipate or do you get at the moment with fans coming to your shows? Um, we have in the past had people we, we get a lot of uh, DIY um, costumes, which is really cool. People sort of take our imagery and apply it to uh, you know they bleach their own singlets or they uh, 
they when when we went through the robes for the first and second age, we had people coming to our shows in robes, which was really cool. Um, with the new release, we're wearing fully kitted out armor, and uh, we'd love to see people come to our shows in in uh, in science fiction armor with lasers and you know laser weapons and that sort of thing. That would be a really cool thing to see. Sort of harkens back to like um, the early Chimidia and Quad days when the fans were this mix of crust guys and punk, as well as total nerds who like to come dressed up. And I think uh, going out to a show and dressing up is one of the most fun things you can do. Uh, so yeah, certainly, certainly people come to the shows dressed up. We have seen it in the past, and we encourage it. Um, live metal and metal in general is a place for freedom of expression. Um, and if that's how they want to express themselves, then I endorse that 100%. And, and hybrid endorses that 100%. And and just talking about the you know the the, the the adaptation of characters and the like in the audience, you are touring mm. the land that cosplay originated in, Japan, with Elvita. Mm. And, and I've got to congratulate you on that tour because I had a chat to Tregal earlier in the year, man, and he's a fantastic bloke. And by, the extent, by extension, the band are a wonderful band. So how did you get the mm. opportunity to tour with them? Um, so the touring agents who uh, are touring us with Elevati as well as um, a, a band called Ipocras, who we have toured with previously, and another band called Abinchova, who we haven't met yet, but we're looking forward to hanging out with. Um, we toured, They toured us with Fintroll at the start of 2016, um, and so we, we sort of got back in contact with them. And so we've got the new record out. Um, we'd love to come back. Let's try and tease something up. And the Elevati opportunity came up, and... The timing was right, and so he said, yeah, let's just go for it. Um, and fortunately, Hippo- Hippocrat, who are also on the Elevated Tour, uh, we toured with them as part of the Fintroll Tour, and they're really nice guys. So we're looking forward to, to catching up with them and um, meeting the Abinchova guys and then meeting the Elevated guys and kicking, uh, kicking on with a few dates. It should be a, a great deal of fun. Mate, it's a heck of a bill, and I, I need to ask, is there a chance that the bill could tour Australia? Um. As much as I would like to say yes, I'm not actually sure if Elevati are coming or not. I do know that that time of year is quite busy with the recent announcements of uh, cattle decapitation during the Cryptic in that same week, as well as that you've got Venom within a few weeks, and there have been several other tour announcements sort of February, March, um, that have already gone through. And most of the guys who I would expect to tour Elevati are already running tours at around that time. So uh, although I would say uh, I would love to say, yes, they're coming. Yes, we're on the bill, and that would be a match made in heaven. I'm not sure it's happening, um, especially this late in the piece. You know, Australian tours these days need to be announced uh, four or five months out to make sure the pre-sale's there. Um, given mm. the amazing amount of tours that are coming through, uh, we're announcing them earlier than ever. To not see elevating amounts three months out um, is unusual. That said, anything is possible. You know, it's uh, the, the, the digital age securing visas and tickets and time is quite quite easy these days and maybe someone will bring them out they've been brought out by a metropolis touring in the past i believe and um i can't see why they wouldn't want to come back but whether they will or not i'm not sure yeah you raise an important point um i'm honestly run off my feet with interviews i know we talked about this off air but i run off my feet with interviews for international touring bands and artists so much so mm. that I rarely get the opportunity to chat to local artists such as the amount of time mm. that I've got to dedicate to this it's already basically taken up with international artists um, 
you know, which is probably a good thing to have because I'm talking to a lot of people that I, I really respect and admire, particularly talking to actually different genre completely, but Al Anderson, who was the guitarist in Bob Marley and the Whalers. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, talking to him uh, a couple of days ago, and he issued me probably the most sincere compliment I've ever been given by really anybody in the circle of work that we're doing. I'm also a musician, but I perform in covers bands because I've basically this is how I earn my living through journalism and through uh, musical performance. Um, sure. But when I mentioned I was a, I was a, uh, a working musician, he said, well, man, you're doing it then. You're a real musician. Now, for me to hear that from him, whose music I've listened to, I mean, who hasn't been listening to Bob Marley practically all of their lives, even by bloody osmosis, <laughs> you can't avoid his yeah. music. Let's put it that way. Um, everywhere, yeah. You know, as a young fella, I never wanted to be a rock star, never wanted to move to L.A. or New York or London or what have you and try to make it, as they say. I just wanted to be a working musician. To, so to receive that validation from one of the greats is, is tremendous. So anyway, just thought I'd digress and throw that little story in there in our interview here. That's you know. a good story to have. Being, being able to be proud of um, what you do, especially in an environment now where um, live music and touring music is, is uh, as tough as it's ever been, if not tougher. Um, certainly something worth mentioning and something to be immensely proud of. I think all musicians uh, in, in every capacity should, should be uh, proud of what they're doing. Yeah, no, I agree, and that's a really good point there. I think if you're putting in the effort and you're really doing it, I really admire and respect Australian artists such as yourself because I know how difficult it is to, frankly, keep your collective you-know-what together in a rehearsal mm. room and then get out there and then do all of the necessary marketing in order to raise the band's profile and book shows. And I was chatting to... Um, God, I'm going to forget his name now. I've got a shocking short-term memory, but the lad from Lagerstein, <laughs> you know, and, oh, yeah. you know, those guys, mate, they're doing it like you guys, you know, they're doing it. They've got tours happening off offshore. They've spent months in Europe just booking shows and doing what it is that they do. And um, you've really got to approach it as a career. Is is that something that resonates for you? Absolutely. Um, the Lagerstein guys, although we haven't played with them since uh, uh, the Glory Hammer tour, um, we've got an immense sort of... Uh, respect for them in that they are one of Australia's hardest working touring uh, heavy metal bands. Um, that, and I think that any band taking that approach, another great example is a band like Earthrot um, from Perth. Uh, anyone who's willing to sort of go out on a limb and, and uh, invest their, their, themselves, their time, uh, their livelihoods fully in a passion like music, which at the moment is, is quite hard Um to, to, to make a go of, uh, there's an immense amount of respect in it, without a doubt. Yeah, and let's talk about the scene you're a part of now. So you are a part of the Melbourne mm. metal scene, and of course there's no question mm. about it, it's the strongest in the country. So what's your take on, mm. on Melbourne and being a band from Melbourne? I think being a band from Melbourne, um, it, 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 it's the ultimate leg up, but also it presents its own challenges. Um, because we are... Um, from Melbourne, which has w one of the best scenes in terms of attendance, at least in the country, um, and, and in terms of number of bands per like uh, per, per punter, um, there, there's lots of them. So it's good that there's plenty of bills to jump on. Uh, you know, we sold out Cherry Bar with a very trashy lineup the same night King Parrot sold it out the Corner Hotel, and so it gives you an idea. And there was another show nearby in the Melbourne CBD which sold out as well. Um, gives you an idea of sort of the levels of attendance. There's sort of 1,500 people at metal shows in one night, and I'm sure there were other shows going on both within and outside of metal in Melbourne that night. Um, but it also presents a unique 
challenge in that there are so many great bands, you really have to be outstanding to get noticed. Um, a lot of bands from interstate, and there are some fantastic Australian metal bands from outside of Melbourne, guys like Dead Space, uh, Rise of Avernus, Earth Ruins, uh, Elkinwood from Queensland, just to name a few that I really respect and admire. Um, they have the benefit of being uh, best in class because there's not much going on in those cities. Whereas if you're in Melbourne, we are faced not with competition, but certainly with um, uh, being compared to bands like Orpheus and Harlot, uh, Bellacore, you know, all these phenomenal acts. Um, and especially for a young band now, like a, like we've been around 10 years, so we've been around for a while, but younger bands now are faced with uh, this this, this uh, scene of infinite opportunity, but also uh, infinite obstacles because there are all these fantastic bands coming out. Um, the key the key to Melbourne, the Melbourne scene's success over the last few years, and we sort of noticed it right around when the second age came out in 2015 was everyone started um, helping each other. We started booking each other, uh, pumping each other up, coming to each other's shows, as well as saying, uh, oh, we'll make sure when we're available that night or we'll make sure we're not playing that night so you guys have a good run. Oh, you've got an album launch on, right, we won't play. We make sure you're well attended. And that went a long way, at least for the bands uh, around from, from that era, um, to, to securing the, the success of those bands at the time. There's a lot of cooperation, um, and I think that's also something that is quite unique to the Melbourne metal scene. Uh, we're very collaborative. We're very cooperative. There's not only oh, we're going to overbook them to make sure they fail, and oh, those guys are doing really well. Let's piss them off. That sort of thing um, is very much a collaborative, cooperative approach to uh, everything we do. And everyone is is uh, make, I'd say most people because I can't speak for everyone, but most people want to make sure that everyone's getting a, a fair go. Uh, and, you know, typically Australian uh, anything uh, very much, although we like to say we're about a fair go, there is a, there's a significant element of tall popping in this country and the Melbourne Middle scene's gone a long way to try and uh, destroy that because everyone does deserve a fair go. And if you are good, uh, you will get the support and recognition that you are deserve and you've worked for. So I'm not giving anything away here that, that the man hasn't spoken about himself, but I had a good chat to Jesse from Dark Cell, who are a band that hail from near me on the sunny coast. Um, yep. He mentioned the tall poppy thing as well. Now, I have spoken about this to the uh, the Australian artists that I've had a chat to. Yeah. To what extent have you felt it? Or can you give me some detail? I just want to, what I'd like to do is I remember coming through as a musician myself. I was in a band called Velveteen back in the day and we did some mm. stuff with uh, Thirsty Merc and a few other local bands who, who were sort of on sure. FM radio. And I can't say I ever felt it from the bigger bands, but I can tell you for a fact, mate, I did feel it from some of the other smaller bands around us and we were a small band. But it does feel like sometimes it's a bit like the crabs trying to claw, claw out of the uh, plastic bucket, so to speak. There's an analogy about that on the internet. People can look up that. But mm -hmm. trying to pull the crabs down as they're trying to get out of the bucket, to what extent did you feel did, or have you felt the tall poppy syndrome? Because to me, it's absurd. Um. I feel as though back in our early days, we both felt it and may have been victims of it. In fact, we, we sort of looked around and said, oh, how come these guys are getting this opportunity and how come they've got all this, these, these, these connections and these things that we don't have? This is unfair. It's their fault. And 
only at the point where we sort of acknowledged and, and it seemed to click for a lot of Melbourne bands at roughly the same time. Only at the point where we all said, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. We should be using these uh, events that are, you know, these blessings, these fortunate things that have happened to other bands as inspiration. We should be turning to these guys not with scorn and not with jealousy and envy, petty nonsense, and, and, and going, oh, I can't believe they got this. We, we, we all turned to each other and said, how'd you do that? I want to be like you. You are successful. Um, and that's what I want for me. And if you can approach those, those successful people who you don't so much idolize, but you, you respect and acknowledge their achievements with, uh, with a degree of um, uh, humility and wanting to understand and know, um, they will help you. Uh, and I think dismantling the idea that your lack of success is anyone's prob- is everyone else's problem is essential. Your, your, your lack of, people's lack of success um, is entirely theirs. It's not because they got opportunity A or someone else got opportunity B. We spent so many years without help. We've never had management. It took us five years to five or six years to secure an international support. And it was only through sheer determination and uh, hammer to the skull did we uh, get our first international support. And, and um, for many years, and I, I know a lot of Australian bands in our sort of vintage have experienced that that bitterness, that sourness, that envy. But then, as I say, a lot of us all at the same time sort of just clicked and went, why are we, uh, why, why do we, you know, pin, pin our issues on other people? Um, and now, I think because of that, Victorian metal, Melbourne metal, I say Victorian because the regional bands in Victoria are just stunning as well. Um, Victorian metal has benefited from somewhat of a golden age of understanding and reaching out and trying to help each other. We've got young guys who I, who I like to mentor and, and they call me up at any time of the day or night for a bit of advice and information and I, I gleefully give that out. Whereas in my in, in my day, people hoarded their contacts or hoarded their internet intellectual property. Um, again, a hybrid um, Brimstone Bookings, which is a booking agency myself and uh, Michael, our guitarist run, as well as several other uh, eminent Melbourne promoters and artists have been very much focused on dismantling, um, destroying, crushing the idea that you have to be envious or jealous of someone else. You should use that as inspiration. Um, like most successful entrepreneurs would. Most successful business people will say, that's how they did it. I want to be, I, I, I don't envy them. I want to be like them. You know, you want to emulate, not, you want to emulate, not envy. No, I agree, and something that's just clicked when, in response to your uh, wonderful answer to the question or to the statement that I made is that I don't think the rise in Aussie metal... See, to me, I've been a long-time listener of metal, 25 years, okay, particularly Australian yeah. metal. I've searched for bands, and mm. I remember the bad old days, mate, where, you know, our, I'm not saying it's the band's fault at all, but, you know, our biggest band was Super Heist, and, and gosh, I'll reframe it. It's not the bad old day because our biggest day was Super Heist. I love Richie Norton. I've recorded with him. He's a wonderful human being. Um, but yeah. I remember when our biggest band... I mean, you could name them. There was, like, Damaged, Super Heist, Destroyer 666... Jesus, it's a very skinny list after that. And, of course, they're all from Melbourne, okay? Now, yeah. my point would be it well, seems... You can't, you, can't dis- you can't discount guys like um, Sadistic Execution and those guys as well. I mean, they went a long way. Lord Chaos is a big one for me back then. Oh, God, you remember them. I, I bought that album as soon well, as it I, came out from New- Warhead I, I, Records. I remember, 
Oh, yeah, I don't remember them. Um, I'm, a, I'm 27, but uh, I do acknowledge and respect the contribution they made to early Australian metal alongside guys like Damaged, uh, Destroyer. Um, they're, they're the bands that I recall having had somewhat of a black metal uh, youth, if you like. Um, and even guys like the Berserker, you know, they all went on to do fantastic things in other bands. Uh, the, the, yeah, King Parrot. Some of the guys, I think, went on to yeah. King Parrot, yeah. They did, yeah, they did. Um, and then there's the Blood Dust, the Connections, the Bramelin from back in the day. Damage, as you've said, is a massive one. Um, I think Australian metal is often overlooked in a historical context. Even Bengal Tigers had uh, quite a bit of influence both here and abroad. And I think Australian metal in a historical context, especially in that late 80s, early 90s, is quite often overlooked. Um, so, But sorry, that's a that's a digression from what you were saying about your experience at that time. So sorry about that. No, that's all good. I mean, you've got to, I've, I've got, I lived through it. So, I mean, there's things that you're going to miss because you try to go to shows and all the rest of it. And I remember going to shows when there were about 15 people at them. Um, mm. Some of the local shows are like these days, there's no way there's going to be 15 people at the Jubilee Hotel here in the Valley in Brizzy or um, wherever it might be in whatever city you're in, you know. Um, yeah. But I'm just saying, I, I remember back in the day when the most prominent bands were basically the bands that I mentioned. I forgot about Sadistic Execution, of course. How could I forget them? They're the band that inspired so much of the, what would you call it, oral depravity of the Norse or the Scandinavian metal scene? I mean, they yeah. were, they're nuts, those guys. Yeah, the Rev and Skits, um, the, the, the outside oft under-acknowledged influence they had on metal globally is uh, phenomenal. Um, I'd like nothing more than to see them get back together and do a run. I know that was unlikely to ever happen now um, for, for a number of reasons, but uh, just uh, the the influence of Australian bands, even Lord Chaos. I mean, the member, one of the guys from Lord Chaos went on to join Dimmy Borg Gear, and of course, the, the setup that Dimmy Borg Gear had in the mid to late 90s in terms of global um, accessible black metal, Dimmy Borg Gear being my favourite band, um, the, the influence that uh, I think his name was. Um, Astanu, I think he's Astanu or Astanu. Yeah, yeah. yeah Astanu or Astanu. Um, either way, you cut it. Um, the influence he had on that, on that, those first couple of albums, or the ones he was involved with, uh, went on to, you know, with contemporaries like Cradle of Filth, um, went on to influence countless bands across multiple genres within extreme and, and gothic and black metal. Um, the Australian contribution to Global metal uh, is uh, I can't I can't say it any other way. Oft underappreciated, but certainly not not um, global metal wouldn't be the same without the contribution without the of these country. Yeah, yeah, I totally well, understand the point. Yeah, mm. yeah, and um, look, the other point that I was making is I think when a lot of that, you know, it sounds like it's it's lessened to a degree, right, in Melbourne, so. It's no coincidence that so many of the great bands, so Desecrator, Harlot, you mentioned, or oh, even Neo, or not even, of course, Neo, mm. you know, they're probably one of the biggest bands in the country right now. Um, mm. When bands started to help each other, it fostered all these wonderful bands and the prominence of these wonderful bands. And I think, you know, the point that mm. you made earlier, I've just sort of clicked on that. It's, it's clicked for me that that's maybe what it was, was that as soon as the band started to work together, it fostered a scene mm. in which all of these musicians could get together and form bands and go, we've actually got a real crack at this. And that's... I can remember. I can remember times when I was much younger, where guys like myself and and Chris Demelko or myself and Andy from Harlot may have had a bit of back and forth uh, banter, a bit of underestimation of each other's capabilities. And you've only got to look at the success of Orpheus Omega, 
pilot and, uh, you know, when we're nearly there, but hybrid nightmares to see that the minute we all stopped digging at each other and started, you know, trying to help each other, respecting each other, working together, you can see the outward effect that that's had. Now, I'm not saying that Hybrid Nightmares is in any way responsible for the success of either of those bands, but what I am suggesting is that uh, focusing on what we're doing and how we can get better rather than focusing on what everybody else is doing and, and how we can, um, you know, it's, it's not us, it's them. Um, moving away from that mentality and focusing inward on how we can improve and emulating each other, I think that's where the 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 the, the thing clicked for us. Yeah, fostering fostering um, a spirit of mateship and brotherhood in the scene is also what you're saying as well, and that helps enormously. Mm. Well, as the, I can count on one hand um, people in the Victorian scene who I wouldn't drink with, and every every other person I would gleefully go out and get blackout with. Uh, I have no, I, and even on the in on that one hand, I harbour no ill will towards any of them. I think we're just different people, but uh, I think now that the, the the mateship, the brotherhood, as you say, um, I think that has gone a long way to to setting Melbourne aside as as um one one of the greatest cities for metal in the world, and and certainly the Australian capital, at least in terms of size and health of the scene and, and again I, I stress that's not to underestimate the quality of bands coming out of of every other city uh every other state or territory in this country but i think melbourne is unique in the sense that um we we do have consistently well attended shows the, the caliber of bands is as good as nationally but there's more of them per punter if you know what i mean yeah, um, I do. And you mentioned Cherry yeah. Bar, I think, which, I mean, I'm obviously from here and I worked for Telstra up until a couple of months ago after 11 years I got out to focus on this, actually, and um, this and musical right. performance. And look, I, I used to go down to Melbourne for conferences and to meet customers and the like, and I always stopped by Cherry Bar. And I've got to tell you, I always used to get drunk at Cherry Bar and have a fantastic time and talk to people I just met down there. And it's one of the few places in Australia in a bar that I really felt totally comfortable. You know, and I can assure I can assure you that any beer you spilt all that time ago is still <laughs> soaked through the carpet, man. Oh, <laughs> we wouldn't we wouldn't have it any other way. Cool, mate. All right, I've got to ask you this question: How do you differentiate the band when promoting online through social media? Because I was having a good chat via email with uh, Chris Broderick, who was in Megadeth and has now got the excellent um, active active defiance, excellent thrash band that he's in now, and. It's sure. a question that I put to him because I noticed that he, when I say only for a North American band to have access to that market, they've only got about 25,000 followers on Facebook or so, which is probably the equivalent to having about 250 if you're in Australia. Um, no disrespect to the man or the band because I've just given them a glowing review in the Metal Obsession uh, website, their new album, and also I said I did the interview it featured in, as an article on the website. But for yeah. you guys, how do you cut through it all? Because, my God, there are so many bands doing so much these days and i know with, even with my own um scars and guitars facebook page and the like i have to spend a fortune through facebook if i want to get anywhere near the likes that i feel uh, uh can it can attract people to listen to so many of the wonderful interviews including this one here mm. um it is really tough and we're constantly having to adapt and change um what could be considered marketing but we call engagement because the digital environment is shifting so constantly and there are you are competing for attention. You're competing for um, people's uh, likes, their views, um, if you are so inclined, their money, uh, although money certainly isn't the main factor for us. Um, everyone who buys a CD helps us get on the road and, and that sort of thing. Um, 
And I suppose the way we do it is we've long maintained very strong, very friendly connections with um, dedicated fans. I think that's a uh, where we're, we're quite fortunate is we do have a group of people who are without a doubt our biggest supporters who we love unconditionally along with all our other fans but they always make the effort to to reach out they take out the booklet they try and understand the concept they stay up late with us and talk about what they think it means to them um and i think that's how we cut through a lot of the guff that perhaps other bands experience um the, the only other thing i can think that helps us um set ourselves apart is um, our, our image. We are very much uh, a live act. Although the album is, we're immensely proud of, is fantastic release in my in my estimation. Um, it translates really well live, whereas a lot of bands struggle these days to make that because it is quite easy to set up the home studio and bust out an EP or an album that sounds pretty damn good. You can do that on a good budget these days and get a really good result. But those guys, I think, sometimes have difficulty translating live. And how we cut through a lot of the online stuff is people have seen us play. They see us play in full sets of armor. They see us play 45 minute to an hour sets, uninterrupted, no stress, no, no well, a little bit of sweat, but um, and and uh, do it gleefully and joyfully and every night if we could. Um, and I think that's what helps us cut through a lot of the online stuff is the fact that we do have a really engaging, powerful live presence. Um. I will say that going back to my earlier remark, just to clarify about you know you're you're vying for attention and that sort of thing, I'm not for a minute suggesting that we're competing for attention with other musicians. Uh, more so that there is an unlimited, unfathomable amount of content out there on the on the web these days, and the web is where most of the marketing is done. Most of the time of people is spent, and we're competing with. Um, Kim Kardashian's nude romp in Ibiza and we're competing with the Royal Wedding now we're competing with uh, Australia's crappy performance against Honduras we're competing with all these horrible politicians and politicianettes from all over the damn world and we're competing with tragedy um, because there are so many horrible things happening all over the planet that, that consume and, and vie for our passions and our attention that um, being a positive, happy, uh, uplifting influencer or uplifting character or trying to convey an artistic notion that is so separate from all these ugly, horrible truths we find ourselves exposed to every day, um, it is a challenge. You, you're constantly barraged with horrible things happening all over the world and trying to be a beacon of, of freedom of expression, of happiness in yourself, of of brotherhood and mateship, as you say, it becomes a, a, a laborious but certainly not a duty that we shy away from. I think it's an immense privilege to be a, an artist these days because you, even against all these uh, these, these uh, adversities facing the world and this constant barrage of information and content and bullshit, um, to be a musician in this world who people uh, will come and see or support um, who, who get the opportunity to talk to journalists, who, who listen to them ramble, um, and those sorts of things is an immense honour and privilege. Um, and so I think uh, wearing that mantle and embracing that mantle uh, helps us cut through a lot of the guff as well. 
it's not so much the churn and burn. This is the new album. This is the tour. Make sure you buy a T-shirt. Thanks very much for your time. But but understanding the the immense um, uh, impetus influence. We don't have immense influence, but the immense privilege that it is to have people want to listen to you and you and you feel like you do have something relevant and important to say, even if it is just be yourself and be happy in yourself. Um, that, and, and knowing that that's a privilege we're afforded, uh, I think that helps us cut through a lot of the crap that's going on, especially on the internet and especially with modern media. Um, that's probably a much longer answer than you would have liked, but it's the most succinct way I can put it without disparaging absolutely every major news outlet in the world. That's a, it's a wonderful response, and what I'm also hearing, mate, is that you know, you're not just competing against metal bands or even other bands in general, whether it be, you know, what from any genre. You're competing against all of the bullshit that's on the internet and clickbait culture as mm. well, which I can't bloody stand, you know. Uh, the, you know well, let me let me just share this story with you and with the listener, okay? So when I first started doing Please. this in January of this year, okay, um, I caught on very quickly um, that it's not about the way that I was asking questions, but uh, one interview that I did in particular was with uh, Carl Willits, the brilliant front man for Bolt Throwers, now in uh, Memoriam. And mm. he made some comments in response to a... I think I asked him about Trump because Trump had just been elected, of course. Now, he gave me a very long, very detailed answer to that. I thought, okay, this is... A, this is I thought it was a very good answer, actually. Um, mm. that blabbermouth picked up on it. I've had this happen mm. a couple of times now. Now, I don't think I need to finish a sentence with someone like yourself, but for... The listeners out there, what Blabbermouth do is they run with these things and they turn them into something that resembles clickbait. Now, I'm not even necessarily blaming uh, Borovoj and the team at, at Blabbermouth for needing to do that. It says more about human nature and our psyche, really, isn't it? We're only really interested in controversy, conspiracy, and I don't know what else to say it, but bullshit. I made a decision after that that I would never ask a band a controversial question. I certainly wouldn't go out of my way to promote the response to a question if it was if I felt it was deemed controversial. I've even got to, to mm. a point where I've once an interview is completed, I've asked an, a, a, an artist or a musician if they want me to edit parts of it out because mm. I don't want anything that I'm associated with to rise to prominence because um, it's anything other than the wonderful musicianship and artistry that a band's bringing to market. And I posted something on my Facebook page recently, the, the third time return frontman for Morbid Angel basically made a statement mm. summarizing what I've just said there. He said, look, all of you podcasters, we didn't say words that these words exactly, but this is effectively what he said. All of you podcasters and part-time journalists, got my hand up on that one there, don't buy into the mm. clickbait culture at all. Focus on what we're trying to do as a scene. We're bringing entertainment to people. We've all got, you know, well, most of us have got day jobs and are just trying to get by in this world and metal and hard rock and all the genres of music out there. That's just people's release. So let's focus on that, the real positive aspect of it. Yeah. I think um, uh, participating in art in any way um, should be an inherently joyful experience. And I think the world at the moment, a lot of the time, um, and it and sometimes brings me to, to tears and physical illness can be an immensely joyless, shitty place to exist. And I think uh, uh, being able to engage in art, whether you're creating or assessing or sharing or discussing art, physical art, literature, visual art, music, um, ex freedom of expression and freedom of the soul, the human, the human condition, the, the the want to be understood. 
I think if you can engage in that in any way, you have you've you've met the challenge, you've beaten the competition, you've conquered the clickbait culture. Um, and independent journalists like yourself and independent artists like us, I think, have a responsibility and a, a greater joy than most others in that we can do this freely um, for love and joy. That sounds so weird coming from an extreme metal artist, but I think that's that's my truth, and I think that's Hybrid Nightmare's truth. I think, is, I think you're bang on, mate. I think you're spot on with what you're saying. We do it for joy. It is. You, you, do, mm. you are, and I've maintained, and this is not the first time I've said this publicly on air, what I say is it's the musicians, the artists, the vagrants, and the weirdos that make the world turn around because we're creators, right? The corporate bankers, the lawyers, the solicitors, and the like, all they're doing is, well, shit, I hate to say it, mate, but they're adding to the world's misery for the most part. You know, They do their best to get by, but what they, what they miss, um, and some of them are musicians and painters and artists, but what they miss is there is more to life than the pursuit of the old ideola. There is more to life than the pursuit of physical comfort. Um, mental discomfort uh, goes a long way, I think, in this world. And people who have been exposed to various forms of mental discomfort or uh, mental uh, or physical displacement, if you like, think it. The, the mind is like a garden, and I think that's like growth. It's like feed for the mind um, and the pursuit of, not the pursuit of discomfort, but the engagement of discomfort and the engagement of, of, of uh, aspects of your life and your physical being that aren't necessarily money-driven um, go a long way in developing human culture. You always look at, it goes back to science fiction. It goes back to science fiction again, uh, which we discussed earlier. Most of the successful societies in science fiction uh, I want to advance beyond the need for money. Um, they've advanced beyond the, the need for physical comfort and they find comfort at a metaphysical level because they've reached a point where all that matters is the pursuit of knowledge or understanding or freedom or creative expression and they've escaped the, the, the trappings of physical comfort and the you know the, the best looking bloke or the hottest chick or the nicest car or the biggest plane or whatever whatever it is you want um and it's hard to compare science fiction to reality for most people i see a lot of truth in science fiction because it's like the the innate it's the pursuit of what we want um and most of those successful societies have abandoned that and i think art is a big part of, of escaping that uh dependence on physical material things that said you know i like going on holiday and i like having things that appeal to me but um the relentless pursuit of of uh, money or or even comfort, yeah, comfort beyond you know what's necessary is uh, is mind-boggling. I get that everyone needs a place to be warm and sleep and eat, and we're very lucky in this country to have all those things and be safe basically everywhere we go. But beyond that, the big yacht and that stuff, uh, I think if we spend as much time on that, um, if we spend as much time on art as we do on that, then we'd be much further along. I'm going to ask you a question now. I wasn't planning on asking this one here, but you've provided some insight into your psyche here. Sure. Um, Joe Rogan on his podcast talks about universal basic income because I actually agree with everything that you've just said there. Okay, And I also believe that if there was a universal basic income, I don't know, pick a number, 40 grand or what have you, and, and you were also supplied with the basic necessities of life, like you correctly pointed out in Australia, we basically have here like universal income, uh, sorry, universal health care, 
universal education, at least up to uh, high school level and the like. Do you think that some of these doctors, solicitors, corporate bankers, um, people who are, you know, they're, they're turning over a buck, but I, I agree with you from the perspective, I've met a lot of people that are in that sphere because I've dealt with some of them at Telstra and they do tell me, oh, I, I play a, you know, a, a P bass or a Fender P bass that is, or a jazz bass or what have you. And they actually can yeah. tell me in some detail the model that they've got and the amplification that they like to use. And I can see that look in their eye that that's actually what they'd rather be doing, but it doesn't provide an earn yeah. for them. So mm. do you think if there was a universal basic income, uh, let's talk about Australia because that's where we're both from, do you think that our society would be able to move forward at a greater rate than the inches that we're doing at the moment? It's a tough one because it's a question of viability. Um, I myself work in a superannuation fund. Um, I work as a customer service manager uh, for, for about 450 people, I liaise with Centrelink on their behalf. Uh, the fund manages their retirement savings uh, for them and we give unlimited free advice, uh, provided you're a member of the fund, to our members. Um, and I think, uh, so, so I do participate in somewhat that somewhat misunderstood uh, white-collar metalhead, if you like. Um, I think universal basic income principally is a fantastic idea because it may enable people who are perhaps trapped in an environment where they are earning just to live, right? They're working, they're they're living to work. It might allow those people freedom to pursue creative outlets or pursue their passions. I very much um, work to live. My my approach to my work and everything I do, both in my main job as well as uh, the small business I run, I work as a, a, a merchandiser for Australian heavy and international heavy metal bands, funnily enough. Um, uh, my, very much, my approach to that is very much work to live. I like to uh, enjoy myself with my money rather than pursue, you know, nonsense. Um, the, the universal basic income is an interesting test. I, I, I can only use myself as an example whereby if I was earning enough to get by comfortably and still do music, um, that would be great. Uh, I think the difficulty we face is there are so many roles uh, in demand that have a lot of stress or responsibility or liability attached to them, which is often underestimated. And people who do those jobs where there's a lot of onus, for example, you have someone's life or well-being in your hands or you have someone's future resting upon the decisions and the way you approach a certain problem. I think the, the the complexity and the severity of their decisions is often underestimated. And as such, people go, oh, you know, they're making this much or they're entitled to that much money. They're, they're getting more than I think they're worth. Um, I, I, I don't agree with that notion. I think that um, entrepreneurship and creativity should be encouraged and uh, that can that you know the the pursuit of money encourages entrepreneurship and uh, and, and that sort of thing. But from from a creative, I suppose I'm somewhat torn in a way then, for, because from a creative perspective, I would love to see so many of my artistic uh, friends who can think laterally and create and innovate. I would love to see them escape the trappings of their their mundane work. In order to pursue those things, I think culturally, artistically, we'd be much further along. Absolutely, but that said, um, you know, some some jobs uh, 
get higher pay because of the liability that's attached to them. Certainly not mine, because my job is essentially a job of care. And I, I love talking to my clients, meeting with them, having a, a tea or coffee or whatever it might be, and just chatting away. But um, you know, I don't necessarily agree with the the CEO of the Commonwealth Bank getting twenty million or whatever. The, I think that's what we're talking about there. It's that culture of greed that's associated with 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 white collar or corporate the yeah. corporate world. And look, as I say, I've just come from Telstra, and I don't have a bad word to say about Telstra as an employer. I think they're a fantastic employer. But for my own reasons, yeah. I got to the age of thirty nine after eleven years of mm. being an account executive in there, and I just couldn't do it anymore. It's as simple as that. And I didn't want to let anybody down. That's the truth of it. You know, including myself, by the way. You know, I just remember one night saying, I said to my wife, I don't think I can do this anymore. And she said, all right, well, you know, we're in a pretty secure position at the moment, so why don't you go and pursue your passion? And um, that's that's effectively and that's what I'm doing. That's what the universal basic income would provide for many, is that security and that freedom to pursue their passion. That doesn't prevent them. For example, if, if there was a UBI and it was $40,000 a year, right, I would gleefully take that on top of my current wage and that would allow me to do so much more with my art because I would have access to an unlimited amount, uh, uh, not an unlimited amount, but a significantly greater amount of resources. Uh, I could spend money on, as you say, cutting through the guff for the Facebook marketing. I could invest in other bands, which is something I'm very interested in doing as I grow older and longer in the scene. Um, that would provide me those opportunities, whereas now what I basically do is um, – feed and live and invest what I can in, in hybrid nightmares uh, and brimstone bookings. But for, 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 I mean, you've only got to look at a band of five people. If they're all working, but they're all getting, as you say, that $40,000 extra, there's $200,000 per Australian band that they can reinvest in their art. And that creates a massive export economy for Australian artists. It's not just bands, it's painters. It's, um, writers. It's all the associated it's, industry, oh, isn't it? There's so many things it touches. Oh, yeah. Exactly. And like, it, it feeds on to the journalists who write about it and the bloggers and all these people who could, who could be satisfied and financially secure, feed themselves, feed their families and contribute to this overwhelming bubbling pot of cultural goodness and joy that, that, that art is. Um, uh, it's hard to fathom how much better off everyone would be that said the viability is is a massive deal because it doesn't sound like a lot of money but i can think of plenty of my mates who if they you know if they were getting their 40 they wouldn't work um and that 40 at the top end doesn't make much of a difference you know you sold trahilios uh he's getting his million 40 g's you know why bother why should i give my money away well, he's um he's taken his money and he's gone back overseas. That's a the thing there. So the money well, that he's earned from us is gone back. Spent all his bloody money on these executives and they go home. And it comes out of this Panama Papers and all this other stuff that's happening at the moment, whereby all these companies who flex the sweat and blood of Australian creatives and non-creatives workers and squeeze every last bloody milliliter of vitality out of human life. And then soak it up like a sponge and rinse the sponge out in some foreign tax haven. It boils my blood black. There's not reinvesting in the people who've put so much into them. And they are the people who the UBI would benefit because they could say, bugger this, I'm done. You go, you go punish some other poor bastard because I've had enough. 
Yeah, yeah, um, and that's that's my view on it. Yeah, I mean, there, there are so many. I'm not going to mention any corporations because I don't want to get sued. But <laughs> there are so many corporations out there that are that are inherently psychopathic. You know that. Oh. They, if they're a human being, you go. You're not just a narcissist or a sociopath. You're a goddamn so, a psychopath. You're taking pleasure in the fact that you know people achieve or people are physically uncomfortable because of what you're doing. And the ignorance of other people to the plight of people in those positions is is irreconcilable in my mind. Um, the fact that they can't. They uh, for many years I lacked empathy. I'm 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 quite narcissistic and arrogant. And I've spent so much time trying to get away from that part of me because I don't want to be that guy anymore. I'm trying to build empathy and understand how other people feel. But even then, I look at some of these corporations and people in charge who willingly allow children to suffer and starve and die at their mother's breast for the benefit of another yacht or another house or a margin, and it sickens me. Um, it just it disgusts me. I sound like a like a, a bit less here, but um, it's unfathomable to me that people could be so careless and so heartless towards the lives of others. And yeah, we're all guilty. We're all guilty of occasionally making light of those things, but um, there is a difference between finding humour in in the the, the the complete despair that is humanity sometimes, and these bastards and bitches who actively go out of their way through ignorance and and lack of empathy to punish people, other people, people who they don't think are people. You know what I mean? I know exactly uh, what you're saying. Yeah, and agreed. Yeah, yeah. it's um, yeah. I, yeah, it's look. It's I think as musicians, artists, and and content creators, we're all similar minded. Whether you're, you know, politically left or what have you, we all agree in a fair go for all, and we all would love to be able to do this as our full time commitment. Look, and I'm giving it a red hot go at the moment, but I have a feeling that in the certainly in the midterm future, I'll have to go back and find something pretty serious again. I, I've made a decision that I'll probably never go back into a corporate role again because I'm simply just done. I'm cooked. I can't do it anymore and go back into an environment where I've got to meet KPIs and have all the stresses, stresses and pressures of customer expectations and the like. It's just not good for me. That's just the way that I'm built. You know, I think I'll do something, um, you know, where I'm basically my own boss and I know I won't be on anywhere near the money that I was on beforehand, but I don't need to be, frankly. Yeah, and, and having that security and um, the conviction to say, despite this may afford me some societal advantage, that societal advantage is far outweighed by the freedom and the the obvious satisfaction that you get from what you're doing now, and that's so important. If, if so many if people could just see that and be able to be secure in themselves and their passion, uh, the world would be a much better place. Instead of cutting each other down at the shins for a buck, this goes back to how the Melbourne scene. I think since 2015, from my understanding, that's certainly when I started to notice it. Um, that's where it's worked is instead of trying to chop each other down at the shins, we work together to, 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 to make sure everyone's being built up. If you want to call it a universal basic income of goodwill, it was a, an income of goodwill towards other musicians instead of, you know, I want more, he wants less. I want more, he deserves less. That sort of crap that we deal with as people we're expected to engage in. Um, the universal, oh man, I've got to coin this, universal basic income of goodwill that the Melbourne scene has fostered, I think if that was more prevalent in broader society, we'd be a much happier, a happier society. 
and I agreed, mate. Mate, let's finish up by giving you an opportunity to talk about how people uh, who are listening can get in touch with you and find out where you're playing. Great. So the best way to get in touch with us, if you'd like to talk to us, and we're always happy to receive any sort of correspondence, um, joyful sharing tales, uh, you've just had a kid, your, your, pu- your dog's <laughs> had puppies, whatever it might be, we, we love hearing from people who love our music or like our music. The best way to engage with us is uh, on Facebook um, through private message. Otherwise, you can always email the band at hybridnightmares.com. Um, that, that's the best way to get in touch with us for a chat, if you like, and we're always all up for a chat. Otherwise, um, in terms of tour dates, uh, media releases and those sort of things, hybridnightmares.com is the best way to get to, to keep abreast of what we're doing both in Australia and abroad. Um, if you do feel so inclined and universal basic income does come to the front, you're more than welcome to tip into the coffers. The web shop is on the same <laughs> website, hybridnightmares.com. Um, and uh, please, for goodness sake, share your stories, your favourite band, the best album you've heard all year. I painted this because I was thinking of how much I miss this person. A- anything you feel like you might bring us joy, we want to hear about it because we love bringing people joy with what we do. Um, it's a far cry from the message of, I suppose, you know, galactic destruction and universal death <laughs> that we talk about in our lyrics um, from from a from a pa- 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 uh, parody satirical perspective. Um, but we are most interested in your joy and we want to share our joy with you. So Facebook um, and email would be the best way. We, we'd like to be more prevalent on Twitter, but uh, I could only compete with so many Portuguese robots before I start to lose yes, what's left agreed. of my sanity. Um, so I think Facebook is probably the best way to get a hold of us or email. That's uh, hybridnightmares.com or the band at hybridnightmares.com if you want uh, to get in touch by email. My name's Andrew Mackay-Smith and you are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast. That was my conversation with Loki, one of the members of Melbourne-based Hybrid Nightmares. Thank you so much for listening.